Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 46, January 31st through February 6th, 1862. Last week, we talked about the Union capture of Fort Henry. Grant was inspired partially by the general call for advance, sit in order number one from Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln, of course, was tired of waiting and wanted to take the fight to the enemy. This week, we actually have one on the lighter side, but I want to have an overview of the Seminole Wars. It is in this conflict that many of the general officers would have gained experience, along with, of course, the already mentioned Mexican-American War. First, though, we do need to talk about elephants. It is in this week, in 1862, that Lincoln would pen a reply to the King of Siam, rejecting elephants to be used in transportation and potentially in the war effort. The elephant is the national animal of Thailand. A pair were offered by Mungkuk, then king of the Southeast Asian country. That name might sound familiar because King Mongkut is portrayed in the famous Roger and Hammerstein musical, The King and I. This musical is not really a good historical representation of King Mongkut or the relationship he had with the governess Anna, as her memoirs blew her involvement out of proportion. But there are some catchy tunes, I suppose. The pair of elephants were meant to be used to populate America. So we can thank Honest Abe for not letting there be groups of the largest land animal tromping through your backyard as you listen to a Civil War podcast. It was requested that the United States supply the boat for transportation purposes, as Siam did not possess a large enough vessel for the elephants. It was also requested that there be enough space, hay, and water, so pretty thoughtful for the well-being of the animals, as far as that goes. There were some instructions. It was also listed that the elephants not be subjected to cold, and you can ask Hannibal about how well that goes when your elephants are subjected to cold temperatures. Speaking of Hannibal, let's take this excuse to talk just a little bit about the use of elephants in war. Usually, they are called the tanks of the ancient world. Use of elephants in war and agriculture originated in India. If you think about it, elephants would be very useful for transportation. They could carry large amounts of equipment or heavy things that possibly horses and, of course, people could not carry. The classic movie Gunga Den, which is one of my favorites, shows the use of elephants for this purpose, especially in the carrying of artillery pieces through rocky terrain, whereas a horse and caisson would not be quite so efficient. Elephants are also strong and can remove trees with their trunks. Talk about being able to clear a field of fire and set up some abatis, am I right? 
that's a callback to our fortification episode. All three species of elephant, bush and forest elephants of Africa, as well as Asian elephants, have been used by people and were all used for combat purposes. An additional extinct species, the North African elephant, was also used. Something I think is a misconception about elephants and their use in war is that most were caught from the wild. Male elephants were almost exclusively fitted for war, as the females were often less aggressive and might not meet a charging male counterpart in the field. But let's talk a little bit about how elephants were actually used in combat. Now, they were often employed as anti-cavalry measures in the ancient world because horses would become terrified when facing a charging bull elephant. Armor and spikes could be fitted so that the elephant could take out more men and beasts. You could also mount a platform on top of an elephant so that you could have personnel firing projectiles such as arrows or javelins. Most probably have an image such as that of Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, and this is really not too far off. Obviously, they were not quite that large, but knowing what we know now, they would have been a perfect counter to the charging Rohirrim. Actually, the second time in the movies anyway, that there is a proper military strategy shown by the forces of Sauron against the elite cavalry, but I think that is another rant for another podcast. You get the idea, though, that these large elephants would be sort of shock troops, and they would, of course, break up cavalry charges. In terms of actual history, elephants were used in the Persian Empire against Alexander the Great, which I'll rant about when it comes to the Ridley Scott movie, because the Battle of Hydaspes at the end has the Macedonians dumbfounded at the use of war elephants, but they were actually already aware of them, and the reason they win that battle is essentially because they know how to deal with them already. Hannibal will use elephants during the Second Punic War, famously losing all of his crossing the Alps in the invasion of Italy due to the cold weather conditions. He would employ them again when facing off against Scipio. It might surprise you to learn that war elephants were continued to be used for many years. Even Charlemagne would employ some. They would start to fade out as weapons with the onset of gunpowder. As mentioned, elephants would continue to be used for transportation purposes in armies all the way up to the modern day. But I think the real question that we want to ask is, how effective were they? Oftentimes, elephants were dangerous for enemy armies as well as friendly. They were tough to control. If a mahout or driver was incapacitated, then the elephant would become more of a hindrance than anything. So, while excellent shock weapons, the results would vary, shall we say. Now, let me read the official letter sent by Abraham Lincoln and his administration to the King of Siam. Very gracious so as to save face, while also coming up with a great excuse to not bring them over. Great and good friend, I have received your majesty's two letters of the date February 14th, 
1861. I've also received, in good condition, the royal gifts which accompanied those letters, namely a sword of costly materials, an exquisite workmanship, a photographic likeness of your majesty and of your majesty's beloved daughter, and also two elephants' tusks of length and magnitude, such as indicate that they could have belonged only to an animal which was a native of Siam. Your Majesty's letters show an understanding that our laws forbid the President from receiving these rich presents as personal treasures. They are therefore accepted in accordance with Your Majesty's desire as tokens of your goodwill and friendship for the American people. Congress, being now in session at this capital, I have had great pleasure in making known to them this manifestation of Your Majesty's munificence and kind consideration. Under their directions, the gifts will be placed among the archives of the government, where they will remain perpetually as tokens of mutual esteem and pacific dispositions more honorable to both nations than any trophies of conquest could be. I appreciate most highly your majesty's tender of good offices in forwarding to this government a stock from which a supply of elephants might be raised on our own soil. This government would not hesitate to avail itself of so generous an offer if the object were one which could be made practically useful in the present condition of the United States. Our political jurisdiction, however, does not reach a latitude so low as to favor the multiplication of the elephant and steam on land, as well as on water, has been our best and most efficient agent of transportation in internal commerce. I shall have occasion, at no distant day, to transmit to your majesty some token of indication of the high sense which this government entertains of your majesty's friendship. Meantime, wishing your majesty a long and happy life, and for the generous and emulous people of Siam, the highest possible prosperity, I commend both to the blessing of Almighty God, your good friend, Abraham Lincoln. So, we can see through that letter, kind of letting down the King of Siam easy with the whole, the elephants would not survive in the United States, probably, argument, as well as, hey, we have some nice steam engines, some nice trains that we use to transport uh, folks in commerce, so... Unfortunately, we're going to have to decline the elephants. In earlier episodes, we have discussed the Seminole Wars, especially in our three opening Setting the Tables back in the beginning of the series. Just so we are aware, there are three Seminole Wars, which span between 1817 and 1858. The first kicks off in 1817, while Florida is still a Spanish possession. The second starts in 1835, and the third starts in 1855. And these, are, of course, are sort of rough estimates and kind of what we put as markers for these start dates. Sort of an ongoing Cold War, sometimes hot war with the Seminoles in Florida during the 1800s here. As a logistical note, I will gloss over all three of the Seminole Wars today. There were junior officers who participate in the Second Seminole War, and it seems like I'm pushing it back, maybe, but I want to have a more in-depth look at that one in a future episode. Now, today, I want to round off on the experiences 
for the U.S. military directly leading up to the war. We've already gone over some of the battles with native peoples on the frontier, so I think it is appropriate to talk about the Third Seminole War, which we can lump into those experiences in the immediate lead-up. Before we do that, let's talk about the First and Second Seminole War, so we can set the stage properly for what has been going on in Florida. We probably went over the most in terms of the First Seminole War in our early episodes because we connected that with Andrew Jackson. Just as a reminder, this war would be pre-Adams on his treaty, which gave Florida to America in 1819. The United States was definitely a benefactor of the political unrest in Spain following the Napoleonic Wars. Not to get too much into it, but Napoleon had installed his brother as King of Spain, and restoration of the original monarchy had its hiccups. France had already set a precedent for abandoning costly overseas possessions by giving up on Haiti and selling Louisiana to America. Combine a revolution in Mexico, as well as the revolutions in South America, Florida became untenable. Prior to a move toward future statehood and coming into the fold of the United States, the Seminoles would actually use the Spanish possession to raid into southern Georgia. In addition, Florida would become a haven for escaped slaves. British agents would assist the Seminoles in their actions against the Americans as well, so if we combine all of those factors, we have a recipe for an Andrew Jackson invasion, hanging of British spies, and the capture of several key locations. Overall, though, there were not a whole lot of casualties and not a whole lot gained. After Florida became the Florida Territory, there would begin the general removal of Seminoles to the Indian Territory in Oklahoma. Some would sign a treaty with America, but others would resist the removal and withdraw further south into the Everglades. The Second Seminole War has a lot of the characters we have spoken of in early episodes and of the talks of the war with Mexico. Winfield Scott, Zachary Taylor, William Worth, all of three of these individuals command at different points. As far as causes go, we can blame the usual suspects, forced relocation, military encroachment, and civilian settlement. All of these lead to the opening action of an ambush of U.S. troops under the command of Francis Dade that saw one survivor. This is actually where Miami-Dade County comes from, by the way. Most of the remainder of the conflict consisted of guerrilla action taken by the remaining Seminoles who made their home in the impenetrable Everglades. Punctuated by smaller-scale battles such as Lake Okeechobee, 1,500 Americans would become casualties over the years between 1835 and 1842. Additionally, it is estimated that there were some 80 civilians killed during the war without an accurate estimate for Seminoles or Black Seminoles as the escaped slaves came to be known. There would be no official treaty ending the conflict, but a general de-escalation of activity on both sides. There was certainly deception on the side of the Americans, 
who captured Seminole leader Osceola under a flag of troops in an attempt to get the rest of the renegades to surrender. It may surprise you to know that there was a large investment on behalf of the U.S. government in Florida. Almost $20 million was spent, leading to there being a general unpopular opinion of the war, sort of an early Vietnam-type scenario. At the conclusion, there was more of a reduction in numbers of the Seminoles in Florida, with almost 4,000 moving to Oklahoma. But there were some who still remained. So this is where the third and final Seminole War comes into play. Land disputes and continued military escalation would be the cause. In 1855, there were a handful of bands of Seminoles still left in Florida. One of these bands was that of Billy Bowlegs. His group of warriors would ambush a group of U.S. soldiers on patrol, killing and scalping four, and taking or destroying their supplies. This would spark general raiding on behalf of the Seminoles, striking in several places. Some of these raids would see casualties by the citizens of Florida. Militia units were called up and approved by the Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, but these units were often ineffective and highly criticized by the populace. Accusations of laziness and drunkenness were rampant. U.S. Army General Joseph Harney would take command briefly with the strategy of forcing the hostiles into the swamps. He would be reassigned to Kansas with his men before fully seeing the implementation of the plan, though. Groups of U.S. regulars and militia would move into the swamp with mixed results. Abner Doubleday would mention that the patrols on behalf of the U.S. military were easily avoided by the enemy. In addition, he blames the lower quality of men, mostly being made up of immigrants, as we have already mentioned, being a point of contention during the war with Mexico. Crops were burned, and there were some captives taken, but no major confrontation between the two sides. Eventually, cash payouts would lead to the surrender of Billy Bowleg's band, who would join the relocation to Oklahoma. Amazingly, there were some Seminoles who never surrendered and remained in Florida, most notably a band under Sam Jones. The Confederate government would actually reach out to Sam Jones in order to secure an alliance, but the Seminoles would stay neutral in Florida during the conflict. Seminoles would remain in Florida, and there are still some there to this day. For our story, there were several Civil War generals who see action during the Second or Third Seminole War. Notably, we have Robert Anderson, Joseph E. Johnson, Jubal Early, George Meade, Sherman, John C. Pemberton, George Thomas, and the already mentioned Joseph Harney. I know we ran a little short this week, but that's going to just about do it. Despite the lack of length, I do think I really made up for it, with our small talk on war elephants, which is a little bit off topic, but I hope you enjoyed it and thought it was interesting. We also got a little overview of the Seminole Wars, although I think we may go back there to the Second Seminole War, especially at some point in the future.
Next week, we will head to North Carolina and see what is going on with Ambrose Burnside. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Feedback, of course, is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.